Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A new episode of Fishology here on the Fish Stripes Podcast channel is right on deck with Daniel Rodriguez, Louis Adio Weiss, and myself, Eli Sussman. Before getting into that conversation recorded between the three of us last week, I wanted to add a brief prologue about the 2023 Zips projections. It's an annual tradition from Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs to put out these projections for every single player. Uh, in the majors and a lot of players who are not in the majors and won't likely even play in the majors this, this upcoming season it's an extremely thorough look on each individual player and it uses a series of comparisons historical comps between what these players are capable of during the upcoming season and what players going back several decades have done at individual seasons with similar skill sets and at the same age as these guys going through the marlins list there were five key takeaways that i had from the 2023 edition, and we'll just go through them right now. Ones that stick out to me for a variety of reasons I think would intrigue you as well in terms of what the numbers say, what this particular pretty well-renowned algorithm says about what to expect from Marlins players this upcoming season. And we start off number one with Sandy Alcantara and his projected regression. I think in the back of our minds, a lot of us can understand that coming off a truly historic season, that it would be pretty unlikely that Sandy is going to replicate that historic season in 2023, and Zips is in that camp, projecting his ERA to spike by more than a full run. It was 228 last year, and his projected ERA for 2023, according to Zips, is 3.32. Endings will go down a tiny bit, walk rate going up a tiny bit, strikeout rate going down a tiny bit, home run rate going up quite a bit. I think that's the most significant difference is whether Sandy can continue avoiding the barrel of the bat the way that he did at an incredible level last year. Zips doesn't think so. Zips thinks he's going to draw a lot closer to his career norms instead of his 2022 Cy Young level. Some of the same age comps that Zips spits out for him include Jordan Zimmerman. You remember him with the Nationals? Felix Hernandez, pretty great comp right there. And now his new teammate, Johnny Cueto, comes up as one of the more similar pitchers to him at this stage of his career. This will be Sandy's age 27 season. So number two, we go to who was originally projected to be the clear Marlins number two starter, Pablo Lopez. I think that's worth noting that Zips was a lot higher on Pablo entering 2023 than any of the other younger, uh, perhaps higher upside Marlins pitchers. They thought that Pablo was the safer bet, projecting him for about two and a half wins above replacement during this upcoming season. I think within the Marlins community, a growing popular take that I myself am pretty adamant about is that I thought Jesus Lazardo, just to name one, is a player that I thought could certainly surpass Pablo in the rotation pecking order this upcoming season. 
based on what he showed during the second half of last year. And Zips doesn't agree with that. Zips thinks Pablo is underrated, that his strike throwing is extremely reliable, and that this past season where he finally showed that he could get past his shoulder injuries uh, bodes pretty well for his future. And they're projecting him to make 28 starts this upcoming year, pretty close to a full year. Uh, and we, we won't get into it now. This is an, a conversation for the upcoming episode about the Arise Pablo trade. We're not discussing it on this one. Next show, look forward to that full breakdown. That I thought the Twins made out really well in that trade because of somewhat of what Zips is saying about Pablo and also because Marlins threw in those additional prospects. And, um, well, so we'll see if they regret it. We'll see if they take Pablo for granted or um, whether... They truly do have this great collection of above-average arms who are going to perform like they're capable of during 2023. That is going to be so critical to the Marlins being competitive for a lot of the year, is uh, having these other guys step up and pitch the way that we think they might. Number three on these Zips takeaways, we go to the Rule 5 draft pick, Nick Enright. He is projected to be good right away. That is very uncommon. Just think of the Marlins Rule 5 picks that they've made in recent years, from Eliezer Hernandez and Brett Graves to Sterling Sharp, players that didn't even make it to the big leagues like Riley Farrell, and more recently, Paul Campbell, there was Zach Pop, and uh, they didn't make one this past year uh, due to the lockout that got in the way of this, so Nick Enright, they're projecting him to be even better than somebody like Zach Pop was during his first year in the league. I found that interesting. He's projected, uh, arguably on a per-inning basis, to be about as good as any Marlins reliever as a rookie. And just to hammer it home, came to the Marlins because he was left unprotected for the Rule 5 by the Cleveland Guardians. They didn't feel that he merited a 40-man roster spot at that particular time. So they're projecting him for a three-and-a-half ERA for about a four-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio, 65 Ks versus only 16 walks. And that's not even projecting him for a full-season workload. They're being a bit conservative with his usage right here. That's going to be fun. That would be a big shot in the arm to this team if Nick Enright was a good reliever right away. I think history tells you that you should not expect much of anything in terms of positive performance from Rule 5 picks. I believe just about all of us are on the same page here that there's still time left in the offseason to make some sort of addition to the back end of the bullpen, and hopefully they still do. And if not, we'll, we'll see what Nick Enright does. Uh, that was a luxury of picking pretty high up in the Rule 5 order. Enright, we've given him a scouting report on the site before, you know, probably below average fastball velocity, but the characteristics of his fastball make it very tough to make contact with. And the fact that he has very good control in a wipeout slider, that has allowed him to put up great numbers in the binders. And Zips is basically saying that he could come pretty close to translating those upper minors numbers to the big leagues. Number four on my Zips takeaways, pointing to the most under-the-radar non-roster invitee, infielder CJ Inahosa. I had a lot of trouble pronouncing that the first couple of times when they signed him early in the offseason. Inahosa, an infielder, 28 years old, the past couple of years has put up very good numbers at AAA, but never quite made it through to the big leagues. He was with the Astros organization, the Padres organization. Most of his minor league career to this point came with the Giants org. And um, we'll see if he finally breaks through to the big leagues this year. He'd been splitting his time defensively between second base, shortstop, and third base the past couple of years. But the reason why I'm mentioning him is because of his offense. 
his bat is projected to be pretty solid in spitting distance between league average. I think on an OPS plus scale, that's what Zip spits out, a 92 OPS plus, where 100 represents league average, a slash line of 260, 310, 387, one of the higher projected batting averages of anybody on the entire team. It is a slash line that is similar but slightly better than Nick Fortes has for 2023. It's a little better than Peyton Burdick. It is a lot better than Jordan Groshans, and that's probably the most relevant one because Groshans is somebody that plays the same defensive positions that Inahosa does, and the Marlins made a bigger investment to get Groshans than they did to sign Inahosa to a minor league deal. I'll be fascinated to see if that works out. The most important thing is for him to get put on the major league team in the first place, and then he's going to have to perform in a small sample in order to stay there. All in all, his median projection for next year is a win and a half above replacement level, despite not playing even the full season. That is if he plays close to a full year, which probably isn't going to happen either. That's why we just stick to the slash line. Projected to be a very solid bat who plays different positions for somebody that hasn't even played in the big leagues before. We'll find out if he truly is the impressive sleeper that Zips projects him to be. And the pitch, Hinojosa swing, and he belt this one toward deep left field. Back is Hawkins, and this ball is over his head. One hop to the wall. Calixte will score. Phil Nevin is going to wave Duggar to the plate. And the throw from the shortstop in Sanchez offline up along the first base side. It's a two-run double for C.J. Hinojosa. And finally, we do go to the new guy, Luis Arraez, who was part of the Twins' Zips Projections exercise early in the offseason. A couple ways to look at this. One is that they believe this the reigning AL batting title winner is, once again, going to hit 300. He has this very unique set of skills not in terms of the eye that he has in the plate, his ability to waste pitches to get to the one that he wants. They're projecting him to hit 303, which would be one of the better marks in the league, even in this post-shift era. The skepticism is that when he was with the Twins, for a lot of last year, he played first base, and the Zips projections had him figured as a first baseman moving forward. And so this is a quote from Dan Simborski at the top of the article, is that, quote, he's one of my favorite players to watch hit since he plays like somebody from 1922. But in the end, he's a fun throwback to a different time and style he plays in 2022. And his lack of power puts a fairly hard ceiling on his value as a first baseman. And he goes on to say, if he's truly limited to first base, Arise probably fades out of the league fairly quickly. And that's going to be a big question for the Marlins because with him projected to be a first baseman, he only had the fifth highest wins above replacement of all Twins position players, only fifth on his own team in projected war this upcoming year before the trade with the idea that he would be stuck at first base. You've heard it by now, Kim Ang is anticipating him to be the main second baseman for the Marlins entering the season. And we'll have to find out whether that is doable due to both the limitations in athleticism and also some physical concerns about having issues with his legs and in particular his knee. Is he going to be conditioned enough to stick at second base and effective enough that the Marlins are willing to have him there and moving him up the defensive spectrum so that there's not as much pressure on his bat to do everything? fascinating question. The final note on that is that Zips puts out these comparisons, three comparisons for these players at this stage of their career, and the second closest same age 
hitter comparison for Luis Arise is Wade Boggs. And that is so on the nose. And that's why the bottom line is that's why people are so excited about this guy. He is unlike anybody else that currently plays in the majors. Stylistically, it is similar to Hall of Famers like Wade Boggs. That's a lot for him to live up to. And just to reinforce it, it is easier for him to live up to it if Arise does stick at second base or just anywhere on the spectrum that's not first base DH. Simborski kind of wraps up his uh, his full overview of the Marlins is that, quote, at some point, if the Marlins are actually serious about making the playoffs, they're going to have to spend significant money in free agency. He is he wrote this right before the trade, and he was very much against the idea of trading established pitching to get hitters, because all that does is um, that doesn't get you all that much closer in the end. Pitchers have are unpredictable, durability concerns, and uh, well, that's going to be put to the test of this Marlins team as to whether or not they have hold, held on to enough pitching to put together an elite unit overall. I hope that was helpful to you guys as we feature this on our analytics show. I thought that was very fitting. I didn't want to get too far away from these Zips projections without going through them and finding those takeaways. So I'll link to it in the episode description as well as on our site. And with that, we'll just turn it over to the previous episode recorded between myself, Daniel Rodriguez, and Louis Adio Weiss. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Fishology. For those of you who may be new to this podcast here in Fishology, we'd like to give you all the in-depth look on advanced stats for your Marlins. We like to go away from traditional stats and really dive deep into just these advanced analytical stats. And as always, I am joined here tonight by the two best people I know for this podcast, Louis Adeo Weiss, Mr. Eli Sussman. Excuse me. How are you guys feeling for this episode? Let's do it. Yeah, going to be a fun one. Yeah, so uh, for this episode, we're going to be talking about first thing, Jacob Amaya, who was recently traded to the Marlins for veteran and one of the leaders on this team, Miguel Rojas, the longest tenured Marlin um, as of that trade. Um, Jacob Amaya comes from the L.A. Dodgers organization, it just, he really, I believe it's almost like parallels. They compare really similar to each other, both infielders. Just the only thing is Jake Bamaya is way younger compared to Miggy. Um, Eli, talk to me a little bit about this trade and maybe a little profile for those of for those people who don't really know about Jacob Amaya or what he brings to the table. Yeah, as you touched on, this is basically about resetting the clock when it comes to their middle infields, and especially at the shortstop position. Miggy Rowe was entering the final year of his deal. There's been some reporting um, saying pretty bluntly that the team just wasn't sure he's an everyday player moving forward, even for the rest of this year. So they pick up a guy that I think has the upside to be an everyday player in uh, Jacob Amaya. And very convenient for the show with Amaya, he, um, he played in – Last year at Double A AA and Triple A, most of it at Triple A, and specifically in the Pacific Coast League in the Dodgers system, and all of those ballparks are actually hooked up to Statcast. I was actually able to dig around and find some of the specifics on him that makes you it makes it easier to compare him apples to apples with actual big leaguers because of those ballparks having the access to that kind of data. And so what you find. From this past season, a max exit velocity of about 108 miles per hour. So to put that in context, Miguel Rojas 
for his entire big league career, his highest exit velocity ever on a batted ball was 109. Amaya, 24 years old, and he's already hitting 108. Naturally, there's the potential for him to have more power than Miggy Rowe ever has. He's already shown it this past year, 17 home runs in 133 games. You need to keep in mind that the Pacific Coast League is about as hitter-friendly as any league can get. You need to adjust that in your mind with that. So to feel confident in him being a big offensive piece, that's a little premature. Nonetheless, this is really encouraging for a guy that was playing at the AAA level for the first time this past year. Just to touch on a couple other stat cast things, not like a super premium athlete, although I've seen his defense and the scouts agree that he is going to stick at shortstop. And that's a very big value tied into sticking at that position, but he doesn't do it with like supreme athleticism. He does it with very quick reaction time. His as a runner, he grades out kind of average. The best that I could approximate, like his sprint speed was somewhere in the 27, 27 and a half feet per second range. That's right around major league average, maybe a tick higher than major league average. And what stands out about him as a hitter, even though I don't, necessarily feel he'll be a middle of the order bat in the majors he absolutely eviscerated left-handed pitching he swings from the right side crushed lefties between double a AA and triple a last year he had an ops of nearly a thousand in that time against lefties uh, 950 what was it 964 ops against lefties uh, that's a little bit shades of miggy Rowe as well when miggy Rowe was at the top of his game especially during that COVID year, you know, but his calling card was that he raked against lefties. So all in all, this guy has a really high floor where even if he doesn't develop as a well-rounded hitter against all matchups, and even if um, like in the worst case scenario, you feel pretty good about him being well above replacement level as a big leaguer and somebody that's going to contribute on this roster for a handful of years. That goes back to really the main motivation here. It's just, taking a flyer on a guy that should be around for the foreseeable future. And you hope for the best, but uh, even in conservative estimation, he's the guy that's going to make this team better, I think. Yeah, uh, Lewis, I'd love to hear your opinion on Amaya and maybe what he also brings to the table. And maybe we can go a little bit advanced in in terms of his stats and everything. I was looking at his OPS. Um, He had a total around 800 OPS. PS between both leagues, which is just very um, – I, I really do like that type of stat and what it brings for Amaya and just keeping it that he's an 800 OPS guy between AA and AAA. Just what do you think Amaya brings to the Marlins, maybe really offensively maybe that compared to Miguel Rojas? So he, I think what you are going to get with him that you won't get with Miggy Rowe is early on, and I think, you know – I'll, I'll touch on it a little bit more later. I think he is the one guy that of the infield prospects that they've acquired this um, offseason with the likes of Edwards and co. Um, you know, LeBlanc, who was recently DFA'd but cleared waivers as uh, primarily an infielder. I think Amaya is the one guy that I think is the closest to big league ready. And a lot of that is predicated on the fact that he obviously performed last year at double and triple A. You know, he OPS about 800. Like you said, it was 795. But what the dynamic that he adds that is generally missing from the Marlins lineup and has kind of been missing for the last couple of years is his ability to take walks. It's something that, um, you know, you can't really teach plate discipline. Obviously, you can maybe kind of instruct a player on, say, hey, like there's certain things that 
you know, you should, pitches you shouldn't be swinging at. And we saw gradually with maybe Jazz last year, he became a little bit more selective at the plate, and that played a lot into his um, what would have been a true breakout season before the injury. But um, with Amaya, yeah, it's the 81 walks in the minors. He is going to strike out a little bit more. Rojas is known to be a good bat-to-ball guy. Um, but I think given the fact that he um, can offset those strikeouts with the ability to, you know, you know, work the strike zone and kind of just get on base without having to get hits is a great thing. And, you know, when he was acquired, I kind of thought he was a Groshans like player where the power's not elite right now, but it's something that you know, they said that he can grow into. I think he has the potential to maybe hit, you know, consistently hit 12 to 15 home runs at the big league level. And if you balance that with average shortstop defense and the aptitude to work pitchers and get on base via walks, then you're talking about a guy who's going to be somebody who's going to hit in the, you know, I would say fifth and sixth in your lineup for the next couple of years. You know, he's a guy, he's a nice, if all he's one of those really nice supplemental pieces to a potentially very good team, should Miami, um, get uh, more position players that contribute. And I think he is a nice start there. I, I mean, I'm very glad with this move. I think, you know, you're kind of resetting the bar with Rojas and just going younger and maybe with more upside offensively. Yeah. Just scrolling through more of a stack cast stuff, just what jumps out is going tying into why he's such a safe player is that he's shown he could hit really high velocity. When I just sort by batted balls that on pitches that were 95 miles per hour and higher, like he did had some of his best results against, high velocity fastball so that's not really going to be an adjustment the question with him and the question with just about every other player that hasn't played in the big leagues yet is whether they can adjust to the secondary pitches that you see in the big leagues the quality of those pitches and the ability to locate those pitches and the strategy that goes into game planning and exploiting players weaknesses all the advanced scouting that he'll face in the big leagues that he didn't have to worry about in triple a that's always the big unknown there is more so than ever. It's such a big gap between AAA and the majors. We feel like we have all the information. We feel like we can dig into all these characteristics and habits that he showed in the minor leagues. But ultimately, it's just a different caliber of talent and a different caliber of preparation that goes into it once you reach the highest level. So I don't want to get anybody's expectations up too high. I don't want to guarantee that he's going to be even a league average hitter at the big league level. We've seen so many of these recent Marlins call-ups not even reach that threshold yet. So it's we just eagerly anticipate when he gets called up, and barring injury, he will be up at some time during the 2023 season. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention before we, we move on to a, a shorter episode is just I was looking at um, his BABIP for the 2022 season, especially he had a higher BABIP in AAA compared to AA, Triple A, he had a three two nine bab, and then double A two six seven. Is that encouraging to you guys to show that he's improving the, the bab up and his batting skills when while he's improving in terms of leads going from double A to triple A, just almost a hundred points better in his bab up? No, well, to me, I'll say quickly, I don't think there's much into that. When you play in the Pacific Coast League, such a hitter friendly environment. Some of these ballparks, the kind of elevation that's played at, it really makes the ball absolutely fly off the bat and giving fielders less time to get where they need to get in order to field it. Um, it, it looks to me like a guy that was just exploiting the advantages of his new surroundings up in AAA. I would chalk most of that up to um, 
just that. I, I mean, something to look closer into in um when we have the time to really look at where those batted balls were going. But to me, that's why you take some of the AAA basic stats with a grain of salt, just because of how the Pacific Coast League rewards guys for doing the bare minimum. Yeah, and it's maybe just the drier air from playing out on that side of the country that facilitates that. I mean, we see it in the big leagues in Colorado, Arizona. Um, you know, guys tend to do a little bit better because of that dry air. You know, breaking stuff doesn't move as well. But when you get to the big leagues and you're going to be playing in a you know more humid uh, climate division, primarily in the NL East, there I think there's going to be some regression. I mean, BABIP is definitely something you need to look at when you're talking about percentages is how far how often the guy puts the ball in play and, you know, he's rewarded for that. At the end of the day, though, I think there's, like I said, there's some regression that's going to be expected just given the fact that, you know, he's going to be facing better pitching. He's going to, you know, he just gradually, there may be some regression. And that being said, you know, maybe you start him at double A rather than triple A as a means of just, you know, as Eli noted, the disparity in the talent between the two leagues is that, you know, maybe Face, have him face pitching that's closer to big league pitching. And honestly, given where Miami is with, you know, their shortstop position right now, we, you know, having traded Rojas, he beyond maybe Joey Wendell seems like the one guy who could be, you know, the most reasonable option to start at that position. But, you know, comes down to what he does in spring training and whether or not the club feels he's ready. And I guess that just remains to be seen. But, you know, wouldn't it be the worst decision um, given where they are in the scope of that division let a guy take his lumps if he does in fact impress you enough to make it to the big leagues. Yeah. And you mentioned him right there, Joey Wendell. Let's move on a little bit and talk about who is going to be the starting shortstop for the Marlins are opening day. They trade Miguel Rojas to get Jacob Amaya. Um, looks like they're going to put him either on the bench, triple A. the minors, not going to be opening day started, but it does look like Joey Wendell will be the opening um, day shortstop for the Marlins. And let's just take a little rewind back to his 2022 season. It was a little injury-filled, played around 100 games for the Marlins. Um, you, you look at his OPS and everything, just slightly under 700, around 660. OPS plus 86. Lewis, when I tell you 2022 Joey Wendell, what really stands out to you? What's the first thing that really comes to your mind when I mention Joey Wendell? I think it's a tale of two seasons, and I say that given that on one side of the ball, he was excellent, and that's obviously the defensive side. What he didn't do at the plate, he made up for to some extent with his glove. I believe Baseball Reference still credited him with something like two and a half wins. So again, he was still a slightly above average big league player, um, in the way that Miguel Rojas tends to ge um, generally be, be, despite the fact that he had, yes, a down year offensively. And again, that's to be expected. You're going from the AL East, which, you know, tends to feature a lot of hitter-friendly ballparks. Um, Wendell hit very well in his time in Tampa. I believe he was about 10% above the league average for the, for the majority of his tenure there. And then you're going to go to a pitcher-friendly ballpark, um, different style of, you know, National League pitching is a little bit different. And, you know, there's going to be some cause for regression. Um I think, you know, like he, like I said, he still provided you value because he was immensely uh, valuable in terms of saving runs at both second and third base. And now you're going to maybe just, you're going to give him the keys to shortstop, which is, you know, more of a ch defensively challenging position, um, a position he's played before. We even saw him play it at times last year. So, 
you know, in that sense, I'm confident that he'll rebound. But yeah, when you when I think about his 2022, it's just that he got it done on one end of the ball and he did it on the other. And even then, when he was at the plate, was still making consistent contact. Wendell is one of those guys who doesn't strike out. He has an aptitude for putting the ball in play. Um, and that, that is important to do if you're not going to walk a lot. He is a pretty aggressive hitter, but it's aggressive in almost like a Hansel Alberto kind of way where with, my, with a little bit more power where, you know, he won't walk a lot, but he will, you know, find the ball with his bat more often than not. And, you know, that's a good thing. And I think that leads you to believe that with the new defensive um, rules coming into place with the shift kind of being banned and positioning kind of having to be different. Maybe Wendell runs into some more hits next year, but it's marginal at best. I think you can hope that the defense sustains itself and that the bat rebounds to maybe a league average extent. And you're still talking about a three or four win player if that happens. And that's, you know, that's still exciting. And that would definitely help the Marlins cause for sure. Yeah. Uh, Eli, uh, what's your, let me get your opinion on, on Joey Wendell now being the opening day starter and maybe what you saw from 2020, his 2022 um, season, maybe it's a strikeout percentage, walk percentage, just really what you saw from 2022 version of Joey Wendell. Well, he's an easy player to root for. He does the stuff that the common fan absolutely adores with his ability to put the ball in play, to do it in very high leverage situations as well. And early in the year, he was not only, I mean, right behind Jazz, he was maybe the most valuable player over the first, however long until he suffered that initial hamstring injury. You mentioned the time that he missed, and both times that was due to hamstring issues, aggravating it. And unfortunately, he had a history of that even before 2022. So I think before even against him as a player, it's just a question of his durability and how many games you can realistically expect from him moving forward now that he's a guy that he's passed his He's about to pass what you would expect to be his typical prime years. He's going to turn 33 shortly after opening day with him. It's He's a guy that it's very easy for him to improve your team just because of how good he is situationally and fundamentally and the versatility that he has to play all those positions. You mentioned that defensive run saved absolutely loved him last year, especially at second base. And shortstop, and even by outs above average, who's in the 83rd percentile with how he played over there. He doesn't make very many mistakes, and he puts himself into the position to get rid of balls quickly so that his pretty poor arm strength doesn't really get exposed on his throws as long as he's you know in a good position to field balls and get rid of them quickly in the first place. He, he's a nice player. Um, this is a Marlins team that – Going back many months, probably going back a couple of years now, Lewis has been repeatedly just reminding them that it's okay to go big on an everyday star caliber shortstop that have been available a lot each of the last two off seasons, knowing that the Marlins don't really budget for that and they skipped out on those classes using the last couple of years. So their path to getting like a star player at that position, it's really fuzzy right now. We just talked about Amaya and his potential, but also kind of his realistic concerns and with Wendell certainly the upside is is nowhere close to being that great player at the position so he's fine for this year and it's a very big it's a it's gonna be fascinating to see where they go with the shortstop position beginning in 2024 or even by the end of 2023 the team is out of it and trades Wendell in his final year before free agency 
it's it's a huge question moving forward. This offseason, we've talked a lot about center field in particular. We talked about the bullpen. But really, uh, for the near-term future of this organization, I'd say the biggest question is shortstop and where, if anybody, if there's really any candidate, any obtainable piece that can give them star-level production at that position, they weren't getting it from Miggy Rowe. Uh, they're not going to get it from Wendell as well. And it's it's kind of, it is a little bit, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I'm jealous. I'm jealous of the other teams that have these like plug-and-play star-caliber shortstops. We are living in kind of a golden age of, shortstop depth around baseball and the Marlins are have not been part of that it's been many many years since they've had that kind of caliber player at that position yeah and I'm just looking at some of Joey Wendell's really percentiles from baseball savant just really it, just a, a lot of four a lot of blue from him Joey Wendell and everything there Looking at his max exit velo, you mentioned exit velo from Jacob Amaya. His is around, he's mentioned 104 at 24 years old. Joey Wendell around 107, and it's been really tailing off year by year for Joey Wendell. Um, uh, Lewis, just how do you see Joey Wendell going into 2023, maybe in terms of his defense? We talked a lot about his offense. Just how, how do you see him holding up at that position? As Eli mentioned, now could be 33 years old uh, just a few days after opening day. I mean, I'm under the guise that if you allow him to play shortstop every day, he's still going to be better than maybe half the shortstops in, say, the entirety of the sport. That being said, I think when you take away Wendell's defensive versatility and you relegate him to one position, you are losing a little bit of value because, like, um, Fielding Bible would illustrate and most sites that outline DRS show you he's valuable at multiple positions um the concern I have though with him is obviously I previously touched on the fact that he is an aggressive hitter his outside his zone swing percentage has gone up and if you look at the prorated numbers he walked 15 times in 101 games last year you prorate that over the course of a full season you're talking about a guy who's walking less than 30 times and again he's not striking out a lot he's only going to strike out about 80 times if you're prorating his 2022 over the course of a full season. But again, you know, there are concerns. Um, will the power return the way it did, say, in 2021? Um, I don't know. Although, and then I, you look at, say, how he is as a situational player. And you we, talk, we hear this spoken about a lot where teams like the Rays, when the Rays get rid of a player or the Dodgers, who recently traded with the Marlins for Rojas and gave us Amaya, when teams like that who are very analytically inclined get rid of a player, we tend to think that they know something that we don't. So they'll, you know, load a player on us. Um, I looked at Wendell's win probability added metrics by leverage index. And for those who aren't aware, leverage index indicates anything above one is high leverage. Anything below one is low leverage. Uh, one exactly is medium leverage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Wendell's leverage and uh, win probability added in high leverage situations was actually gradually decreasing over the last couple of years. I believe it was about negative 0.4 in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, with Tampa. And then if you go to 2022, where he has the down year, though Eli noted it was marred by a hamstring injury, it's negative 0.58. So maybe the Rays were seeing that, hey, like this guy was great for us for a couple of years. We kind of got all of the value, I guess, the best seasons of his career that we were going to get. 
so let's unload him now and they kind of just did that and maybe that's another thing that has me a little concerned is that the marlins didn't see with enough foresight that hey like maybe this guy well he'll prove valuable at certain times he's not gonna provide you that bat that you were looking for when you acquired him initially and that is concerning that is the one thing that would lead me to believe that he won't fully rebound offensively and like eli said he's kind of like transitioning out of his prime as he hits his mid-30s but again i still think that if you you know if amaya has a strong spring that could even be a net benefit to wendell because i think it would allow him to resume almost like a birdie like level of um versatility he won't play the outfield but he'll you know move around in the infield spell guys at times and still get consistent playing time and provide you good defense at multiple positions um that could still make him a valuable player but yeah like if the bat doesn't rebound i think you know you're you're at best going to get what you got last year and that's a marginally above league average defender slash hitter with um questions surrounding his play discipline um before we move to the next topic again lewis um how do you feel is how do you think the, the state of the shortstop position is for the marlins going forward just top to bottom organizational wise guys on 40 man triple a just the, let's see for the foreseeable future how do you think the Marlins are positional-wise with shortstop? So let's look at the free agent shortstop list for 2023-2024. It is not strong at all. Yeah, well, I was going to say, let's not look at it because it doesn't really have any answers <laughs> well, for them. You know, unfortunately, like, if we're, if we're erring on the side of pessimism, we kind of have to because I think if you look at the Rojas trade, the Marlins obviously wanted to get younger, correct? You know, Rojas is in his mid-30s. He's a great defender. He's at times a good hitter, um, though that track record doesn't sustain itself over a long period of time. But you look at the trade for Amaya who, and the trade for the likes of Edwards, another race transplant like Wendell. The Marlins are banking on, you know, younger guys, uh, Khalil Watson being another guy though there's already questions about his character and the swing and miss is out of control in the lower levels of the minors. They are definitely, as it appears on the surface, they look as if they are banking on um, upgrading that position internally, though they you know, went out and made a couple of trades to upgrade. But let's look at the free agent shortstop market. Tim Anderson has a club option with the White Sox. If he has another Tim Anderson-esque year, that likely gets picked up, No. Javi Baez is an opt-out. With that way that first season went in Detroit, he's likely not going anywhere. Brandon Crawford, a guy who will be entering his late 30s by the time he hits free agency. Yeah. Paul DeYoung, a guy who's had swing and miss questions his whole career. He was sent um, down, I believe, this season. Exactly, but yeah. he has power, and that is alluring to most teams. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, another Rojas-like player, doesn't strike out, not a lot of pop. Great defenders. Um, yeah, multi-positional versatility, Alberto Mondesi, a base stealer, something that could prove valuable. Um, but again, always hurt, doesn't walk, that we've seen that with Wendell this year, or last season, hurt, Rojas as well. Ahmed Rosario may be the most attractive guy, but even then, we're talking about guys who, Ahmed Rosario is another example of a guy who has a very aggressive approach at the plate, though he, you know, coming off an excellent year in Cleveland. We'll see if Cleveland decides to lock him up long-term. So, yeah, when you really, you know, scour 
the potential free agent market for next year and you look at the moves that they made, they're definitely trying or hoping or, you know, Ang and co are hoping and holding out that they have the answer internally, whether it's Yiddy Cape in a couple of years or it's, you know, the likes of Edwards or Amaya, they're banking on one of those three, if not multiple guys to potentially fill that, uh, that now it's a void long-term because Wendell isn't a guy for the next five to six years, given his age and, you know, steady decline that we've seen at the plate over the last couple of seasons. Yeah. So I just want to say, I think we've mentioned this on a previous fishology episode, but I think the, maybe the, not the best outcome, but one outcome that I guess is possible for this season, for whatever reason, if Wendell gets moved or he gets hurt again and they have a vacant shortstop spot and they're in a position where jazz has to play there on a consistent basis and jazz performs well at shortstop, which he didn't do in 2021, but we feel he might be capable of doing just based on his skill set and based on what he did in the minors. If somehow they wind up in a position where jazz is playing there every day and he puts together a complete season, his best season yet, then there, there you go. Boom. Then you have your answer at that position It's going to be a very expensive answer to extend him at that point. But I think that'd be a good problem to have. And that'd really be, the, um, that's the pie-in-the-sky scenario, is that they wind up needing Jazz in that position, and he runs with it, That moving all the way up the defensive spectrum. Fingers crossed that uh, we get to see him at least try to play short at some point during 2023. Yeah. So let's go on to our last uh, topic, just really uh, quickly. We don't have to spend too much time on this. Um, and that's the news that Dan Castano has been uh, DFA'd by the Marlins to make room for Johnny Cueto um, to, to make room on the 40-man roster. Um, really quick, I wanted to ask you, Eli, just what, what does this mean now for, for the Marlins in terms of starting starting pitching and maybe what you saw from Dan Castano and maybe from last season? Because I know he really improved a lot in terms of being a starter and, and as a pitcher entirely last season. You can say that. He made some interesting adjustments. What sticks out in short is that he's a guy that has had far below average velocity, and he's been extremely mm-hmm. hittable um, in his previous major league stints. So what he tried doing this past year is leaning heavily on his cutter. Instead of going low 90s, upper 80s with his heater, he tried going mid 80s with his cutter. He threw it about 40% of the time in the big leagues last year. There were a couple days where he just had it clicking and got great results. What sticks out is that game he pitched against the Phillies right in the middle of the year where he went into the seventh inning scoreless. He's a guy that when he's on, he works deep into games because, unfortunately, he doesn't really have an option when it comes to missing bats. His stuff is – his raw stuff is just so marginal, and his command has never been particularly good either that hitters can get their bat on the ball, but when he's on, he gets a lot of soft contact and he's able to get things done. He had a weird Marlins career in that over parts of three seasons, his ERA was almost a full run lower than his FIP, his fielder independent pitching. It is unusual to have a gap that's that large over that significant of a sample. There's And just by watching him every day, it's, it's hard to come with any other conclusion that he was a little bit fortunate to have a sub-4 ERA in his Marlins since. There's really no other way around it. Um from a roster management standpoint, though, this was the right move in light of Cueto coming aboard. Because um, Cueto actually has some similarities at this stage of his career, except obviously has a much longer track record. He has a deeper pitch mix, et cetera. And so with Cueto, 
well, not with Cueto, with Castano, he was out of minor league options. And for the moment, there was really no path for him to be anywhere close to a starter and even a long reliever. Like he didn't have a clear niche on this team moving forward. So uh, this move, um, it's it might ultimately be insignificant because he could clear waivers. He could get sent to the minors and then he could just report to spring training as another depth arm in the organization. And so that's, that's what my fingers are crossed because he's fun personality. And I think he does have some value. He has shown some flashes of being a useful depth piece spot starter when things are going on. So hopefully he finds his way to stay in this organization despite being DFA'd. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, any, any final thoughts on, on Daniel Castano you, you want to mention before we go? Um, I mean, hey, like the Marlins didn't do all that bad in that trade with St. Louis. Now, did they for Marcelo Zuna? You know, you get <laughs> Zach Gallen, you get Sandy, and you get, you know, even to get this kind of performance out of Castano, who is the afterthought of that trade for sure, though obviously Gallen is no longer with Miami. Um, that's, you know, that's definitely one of the better trades in franchise history. I think we can argue it's up there with the Hoffman-Sheffield deal that they made in 93 um, when they swapped those two guys. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, you feel for the guy. I, I believe Eli, me, and Noah did that game in 20, it was last season when he went seven innings against the Phillies. Uh, was, that was at home, I believe. Uh, yeah, good guy. Just good all-around guy. Um, he's kind of like, reminds me of like Brent Suter a little bit where – you know, he's not going to miss bats, but it's like you said, it, it's that reliance on that cutter and suitor. I think in Milwaukee is another one of those guys who tries to compensate for the lack of velocity by kind of cutting and spinning the ball to get outs. And, you know, he, he is what he, he is what he is. He's, he's one of those kind of below, well below league average um, basketball throwers in an era predicated on velocity. And it's fun to see those guys nowadays. They're anomalies. It's, you know, He's almost like watching Wade Miley nowadays, who can, ha, for the entirety of his career has never thrown hard, but has managed to be effective at several different points um, because of his ability to move and cut sink, you know, do what you got to do, spin it. He, you know, he's just fun to watch. And hopefully if he does, in fact, uh, not clear waivers, hopefully he catches on elsewhere. I'd like to see him pitch in the big leagues again. I think he... You know, with what he did last year, and despite the fact that he has gotten a bit lucky, Eli, as you noted, through FIP and the fact that he just doesn't miss bats, I think he's earned a shot to, you know, eat some innings for any team going forward. You know, preferably a team that wouldn't be competing because he's he's not a foundational piece, but he's somebody who did enough to at least merit a little bit more playing time. Yeah. And with that, um, that's going to be this episode of Fishology. Just some really quick hits. Jacob Amaya, Joey Wendell, and some on Dan Castano. Hopefully, with more news comes by, we'll give you a brand new episode, longer hour version of Fishology. But for this episode of Fishology, for Daniel, myself, for Eli, for Lewis, we thank you guys for listening. And always, go fish. <laughs>